From the hidden mysteries of prehistory to the loud and out there present, the concept of magic has fascinated, enchanted, and bewitched our minds, bodies, and souls. Join me with your favorite blend of caffeinated ambrosia as I discuss the historical and cultural significance of magic with a smattering of pop culture. I'm your host, J.R. L'Esperance, and this is Coffee and Conjure. Greetings, and welcome to episode 3, Mesopotamian Magic. In this episode, I will provide a brief overview of Mesopotamian history from the early Bronze Age up to the Persian assimilation of Mesopotamia into their empire. Then, of course, I'll get to the good stuff. Before we get to that, though, I have to tell you what I'm drinking. So the ancient Mesopotamians drank a lot of beer. So naturally, I found a coffee-flavored beer. It's a Founders beer. It's called Breakfast Stout. It's a double chocolate coffee oatmeal stout. So if I start slurring my words, you'll know why. So here we go. I'm going to crack it open. Take a sip. You know what? That's not half bad. <laughs> That's not actually half bad. Sorry for that loud noise. Yeah, that's good. Alright, so. Now that we've got that out of the way. Let me know what you're drinking. Um, email me or shoot me a message over social media. Okay, so let's dive in to Mesopotamia. The word Mesopotamia actually comes from the Greek, meaning the land between, between two rivers. Mesopotamia is a section of a greater region known as the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent is just that. It's shaped like an inverted crescent moon, or if you want to think of a croissant, you can think of that too. But this area region was made up of northern Egypt, up along the eastern Mediterranean coast, sometimes called the Levant, into Syria, arcing through and down into Iraq and Iran, all the way to the shores of the Persian Gulf. The geography and environment contributed greatly to the development of civilization in this area. In my world history class, we usually discuss Mesopotamia briefly in combination with the other early river valley civilizations, as we call them. They are thus named because these civilizations grew up near rivers. In Mesopotamia's case, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, hence the land between two rivers, offered a sustainable way of life with rich soil and a good source for irrigation for farming. 
It is in no small part to these rivers that civilization was able to thrive in this region or whatever region the river was in. It will be much the same for Egypt, which we will actually discuss in the next episode. So starting off, around 3500 BCE, the world's first city emerged on the Euphrates River, the city of Uruk in modern-day Iraq. Uruk was one among many cities that sprang up in the region, dubbed Sumer. There were no countries as we know them, but instead city-states. A city-state is an independent political, economic, and social entity. So basically, think of the town you live in as its own country, with its own government and social hierarchy existing outside of the rule and the purview of the United States. Now imagine there are several city-states clustered in neighboring areas, and you've got ancient Mesopotamia in the beginning of urban thinking. A city-state usually included a central city, most likely walled off for defensive purposes, and of course it's the seat of power for the ruler. Outside of the city-state of the city-states were the suburbs. Yes, no joke, the suburbs were outside of the city, and agricultural villages. Most of the city-states in this region were not culturally distinct from each other, but similar in spoken language, everyday life, and religion. The rulers of the city-state in their early development were mostly kings. Leadership styles and such changed over time as empires rose and fell. We also can't forget to mention that at the geographic center of the city-state, probably the city itself, was most likely some sort of main religious temple. But we'll get to more about this in a bit. The area of modern Iraq was not the only area in the Fertile Crescent that contained city-states. The Canaanites in modern-day Israel, Palestine, and parts of Syria also had city-states, as did the Phoenicians in the Levant and northern parts of Africa. The world's first writing system also developed in this period, beginning with pictographic symbols um, around 3200 BCE and eventually evolving into cuneiform around 2400 BCE. I highly recommend googling cuneiform. It's kind of like these wedge shapes. Um, they're very distinctive. It is at this time humanity produced its first piece of literature in written form, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, though the main character of this fictional piece, may have actually been a real king of Ur, but we can't know for certain. He is depicted as an epic hero and may be the archetype for later stories involving heroes. This epic poem recount, recounts the adventures of Gilgamesh, as well as his friendship with Enkidu. It is a tale of monsters, gods and goddesses, and eternal life. It's an interesting read, and I would actually highly recommend reading it. As far as a spoken language, Sumerian was dominant at this time, though there were other languages, such as Akkadian. Speaking of... 
After Sumer came the Akkadian Empire, arguably one of the first empires in history. It was formed when Sargon of Akkad united several cities in Sumer to create his imperial state. The definition of empire will vary depending on who you talk to, but at its most basic, an empire is a bunch of countries or cities joined together under one supreme ruler. In this case, a bunch of city-states came together to form the Akkadian Empire. The Sumerian language became less dominant during this time, and instead was increasingly replaced by Akkadian. Ultimately, the empire lasted only a few hundred years and included other kings such as Rimush, Manishtushu, and Naram-Sin. A little sidebar here. Let me take a sip here. Yeah, that is good. Mm. If you've seen The Scorpion King starring The Rock, you will remember he is referred to as the Akkadian. So there you go. Now you know what that means. After the Akkadian Empire came the first Babylonian Empire. Around 1800 BCE, the infamous ruler Hammurabi merged all of the Sumerian cities under his umbrella and establish his capital at Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq. Spoken Sumerian became almost extinct, as everyone spoke Akkadian. I called this the first Babylonian Empire because, you guessed it, there are a couple of instances in history where we see different Babylonian empires. The second one comes later. Not that I'm trying to treat you lovely listeners as my high school students, but one thing I would like to note here is Hammurabi's contribution to history. Hammurabi's Code. This is the world's first example of a codified set of laws, literally written in stone. We know of its existence because of a stele currently housed in the Louvre that depicts Hammurabi himself receiving these laws from one of the chief gods of this region perhaps Marduk. If a man put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out, says one of the many laws of this list. This is where the origin of an eye for an eye comes from, as well as a tooth for a tooth. Quote, if a man knock out the teeth of his equal, his teeth shall be knocked out. Unquote. The first two of Hammurabi's laws might be construed as pertaining to the use of magic, so of course I want to highlight them. They read as, quote, If anyone ensnare another, putting a ban upon him, but he cannot prove it, then he that ensnared him shall be put to death. If anyone bring an accusation against a man, and the accused go to the river and leap into the river, if he sink in the river, his accuser shall take possession of his house. But if the river prove that the accused is not guilty, and he escape unhurt, then he who had brought the accusation shall be put to death, while he who leapt into the river shall take possession of the house that had belonged to his accuser. Unquote. Very wordy, but a pretty good callback, maybe, to the whole concept of witches sinking or not sinking, but we'll, you know, eventually get to that. When a neighboring group 
called the Hittites sacked the city of Babylon in 1595 BCE. The Kassites came to power in the region and ruled until about 1150 BCE. The Kassites deserve a spotlight, of course, but the archaeological record is a little spotty, so I am going to power on. After the collapse of the Kassite dynasty, the area came under the control of Assyrian kings. And yes, I am going to ask you what the capital of Assyria is, as an extra credit. If you know it, email me. <laughs> the Neo-Assyrian Empire, as it is called because of the existence of an old Assyrian Empire, was perhaps one of the largest and mightiest empires to date during this period. They had conquered parts of Greece and all the way down to modern-day Ethiopia. Again, more can be said about both the old and new Assyrian empires, but I will go on. After the Neo-Assyrian Empire came the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which lasted from about 616 BCE until the Persian Empire absorbed it around 539 BCE. We'll actually talk more about Persia in a future episode. And of course, after the Persian Empire came Alexander the Great, then the Seleucid Empire, then Mesopotamia was ruled by several smaller kingdoms and empires until the emergence of Islam and the Islamic Caliphates. The Neo-Babylonian Empire's most famous king was Nebuchadnezzar II, though depending on the source you're looking at, you'll get a more positive review or you'll get kind of a negative review. In the Bible, he is the king responsible for the Babylonian captivity, which is a period in which ancient Hebrews were held captive in Babylon after the sack of Jerusalem. If you read Babylonian sources, they paint Nebuchadnezzar as the bringer of a golden age. Because, you know, of course. Also, it is good to mention that Morpheus's ship in the Matrix movies is called the Nebuchadnezzar. I actually don't know if that is supposed to have any meaning in regards to the mythos of the Matrix series, but if it does, you should email me to let me know. Alright, so this history that I just gave you is a hugely simplified history of Mesopotamia. Again, just like prehistory, it's largely more nuanced than it is, than I presented it here. Unfortunately, I never actually had the opportunity to take a class on this topic in my undergraduate days. But I find this era really fascinating. I mean, it is the cradle of civilization. Much of the early concepts of society were formed here including complex systems of governance and religion. Written language began in this region. Farming techniques were honed here, such as innovations in irrigation. The civilizations studied the stars and celestial bodies. They traded with others and developed mathematical concepts. This is still a relatively young time period as far as its position in academia. Only within the past Actually, a couple hundred years have archaeologists begun to excavate this area of the world, especially areas in Iraq. There's a really rich history hidden there that really needs to be explored and uncovered. 
Much of what we know about Mesopotamia is thanks to the hundreds and hundreds of clay tablets that have been excavated over the past couple hundred years. Clay is a lot more durable and longer lasting than, say, the papyri of Egypt. It is because of these clay tablets containing cuneiform writings that we know about wars and conquests, social and governmental goings-on, and yes, even a complaint about substandard copper. Don't believe me? There is a clay tablet sitting in the British Museum right this second in which a customer, Nani, complained about Aya Nasir's cheap copper. So imagine that. Always some customer complaints. <laughs> Needless to say, there were many civilizations. Oh, hello, that's my dog. Needless to say, there were many civilizations in Mesopotamia alone that rose and fell, that interacted and conquered. And it's difficult to know the whole story when we don't actually have the whole story. Or, you know, at least a good chunk of it. Hopefully in the near future, archaeologists will be able to really dig into excavations in Iraq and other areas of the Near East. Alright, so that was a bit of historical context. I'm going to take a break to um, take a few sips. Mm. This is not a paid advertisement for Founders, but man... That is actually some really good stuff. <laughs> Alright. So, let's get into Mesopotamian magic. When I was in high school, I discovered these young adult books that I quickly got hooked on. The first book was called Keeper of the Winds. There were four books in total, but I think the author had intended to write more. The story centered around Jenna Solitaire, a college student who discovers she is the guardian of ancient magical boards, like wooden boards. Think Ouija board, basically. I still have these books, and though I don't really remember the details, I do remember that the boards were called the Boards of Babylon. Throughout the books, we got flashbacks to the making of the boards, which you guessed it, were crafted in ancient Babylon. One of my favorite movies of all time, Ghostbusters, features Gozer, a Sumerian god, which is actually not at all historically accurate, but it is entertaining nonetheless. I will never forget the line, aim for the flat top. <laughs> in the Evil Dead universe, the Necronomicon, or Book of the Dead, also contains pages written in Sumerian. So I feel like you can get the picture here. If there is any reference to ancient Mesopotamia, it's usually in a magical or supernatural sense. Whether for good or evil, that varies, but there must be something rather magical about this place and time. So let's go ahead and find out more. One of the most recognizable aspects of the ancient Mesopotamian landscape are ziggurats. Unfortunately, there are no ziggurats that remain at their original height, but the remains of at least 25 of them have been found throughout Iraq. 
A ziggurat is a blocky pyramidal structure made of sun-dried mud brick with steps leading up to the apex. At the top was a small temple, usually dedicated to the patron of the city-state. For example, the city of Ur was the home of Nana, a moon god. Eridu was the home of Enki, god of wisdom and fresh water. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, was probably a ziggurat of some sort, as the structures were believed to actually be landscaped with lush vegetation, like trees and plants and stuff, on the platform sides of the structure. But unfortunately, the Hanging Gardens are another structure lost to time. So, ziggurats were built as homes to the gods. You can imagine they must have been very well kept up and stocked. It was the job on the part of the king or the ruler of the city-state to provide for the god living in that temple. There are accounts of statues of the patron deity residing in the temple. And in general, the patron deity played a big role in the identity of the city-state. These statues were tended to by priests and other religious officials. There are even accounts of a high priestess of Nana, a position held by the daughter of the king. So religion was a bit of a family affair. But the statue became an important aspect of religious life, as the statue was never simply just a statue, but the actual god itself incarnate. In other words, they believed the god actually imbued himself or herself into the statue with their essence, and thus were always present. I don't know about you, but this kind of screams sympathetic magic to me. The priests that tended to the gods often provided them with food and drink to appease them. The Egyptians actually practiced a similar ritual, which I will talk more about in a future episode, but needless to say, they treated that statue like a real person, even going so far as to clothe them and entertain them. I guess it's good to be a statue in ancient Mesopotamia. What we know about Mesopotamian religion comes from those clay tablets I've mentioned. Also, iconography on buildings and such, pottery, and archaeology in general. The pantheon of gods of Mesopotamia was vast, much like other pantheons throughout the world. As far as we can tell, there was surprisingly little change made to the mythology of these gods over time, though their name and attributes might have shifted a little bit. So basically, their stories stayed the same, for the most part. Their gods include Marduk, patron of the city of Babylon and chief god of the pantheon, Nana, who I've talked about, sometimes called Sin, patron of the city of Ur and god of the moon, Enki, I've talked about too, patron of Eridu and god of fresh water and wisdom, then we got to get the ladies in there with Ishtar, goddess of love and war, Gula, goddess of healing, and Lama, goddess of protection. 
What's interesting is that the Mesopotamians recognized demons as an entity. Demons were seen as not divine, of course, but they were supernatural creatures that could aid you. Catch that? Aid you. Interesting, I know. Or harm you. Big surprise. They don't reside in the heavens with the rest of the deities, but they occupy liminal spaces in the earth, sea, and parts of the sky. For example, the demon Pazuzu slandered, thanks to the movie The Exorcist, was actually a demon who protected humans from plague and evil forces. Pazuzu was the foil to Lamashtu, a demoness who preyed on unborn and newborn children. Archaeologists have found evidence of amulets pregnant women probably wore in order to protect their babies from Lamashtu. These demons were often depicted as chimeras, or creatures with two or more features from humans or animals, very much like the Egyptian gods are depicted, which of course we will get to next. If you found yourself a victim of a demon, there were a few things you could do. You could make a plea to a god, call upon the services of an exorcist, or use magical means such as amulets, spells, and the like. Oftentimes, we mostly get a glimpse into religious practices of the rich and influential members of society. Thankfully, we do get some insight into the everyday person and their religious practices. They used votive plaques, so just kind of small clay plaques, clay squares, that um, usually have a deity drawn on it or some other so sort of symbol as an offering, and also votive figurines. So again, something small, usually maybe an animal or representative of a person, as an offering. Um, so these were used for various purposes other than offerings such as magic and protection. Excavations of houses in the area revealed niches, usually in the walls, that could have actually been a household altar. With regards to burial practices, there's actually not much information known, as of right now, about the specifics. Some grave sites have been found, but nothing that could kind of give a definitive answer as to, like, the whole of burial practices. Archaeologists have not gotten the opportunity to uncover any burial examples that would give us more information. Yet, of course. Alright. Sip. So, let me ask you a question. Do you have an app on your phone to check your daily horoscope? Do you know your sun, moon, and rising signs? What, am I, what I'm referring to, of course, is astrology. Astrology is the study of the sky, including the planets and stars, and interpreting their positions and movements with regard to the fate of something or someone here on Earth. I am a Taurus sun, a Virgo moon, and a Leo rising. And for me to explain that would be a whole other episode, but take from that what you will. Astrology has its roots in ancient times, especially ancient Mesopotamia. 
Though the Zodiac as we know it was not quite developed yet in this early, in the early time period of Mesopotamia, but some scholars think it did get its start towards the end of Mesopotamian dominance. Not only was astrology meant to give insight into current events, but it became a method of divination or the prediction of the future. In ancient times, astrology and astronomy were one and the same. So we shouldn't discredit the Mesopotamians and their achievements in science. Regardless, both methods of looking at the night sky are in pursuit of understanding the universe. The stars were viewed as ways in which the divine could communicate with those on earth, like messages from the gods. Many aspects of society as a whole were determined by the positioning of stars. When to build a grand building when to go to war, is this political marriage going to be fruitful, and so on and so on. The basis for Mesopotamian use of the stars comes from their cosmology, which basically is their mythology. So in one of their creation myths, the god Marduk set up the earth and heavens from the body of Tiamat, a monster he had slain. According to their myth, Marduk set up the stars to help keep time, as well as for other functions. So if Marduk, the chief god of the pantheon, put them up there, then clearly they are a divine aspect that must be interpreted. Archaeologists found clay tablets that were logs of different stars in the times they usually arose in the night sky which was one facet of the way they kept time. They also looked at the sun and the moon and figured out even when a leap month should be added. Naturally, the next step was to create lists of the phenomena witnessed in the sky and the omens that they bring. Quote, If a star passes from the west to the east, for three years the land will experience evil. If a star flares up from the middle of the sky and sets in the west, a heavy loss will occur in the land, unquote. Kind of bleak. <laughs> in the courts of the kings, scholars were appointed to be the court astrologers. There were other official scholars that interpreted animal entrails, the insides of the animal, but the court astrologer was responsible for writing out a whole report about what they have observed in the sky and how that event might impact things on Earth. They would even take it a step further to say what could be done to either boost the positive event or dispel the negative event. So just think of President Biden receives a report every day from his chief astrologer telling him what is happening in the heavens and what he should do that day or what he should avoid that day. That's basically what it was. So here's an example of a report. Quote, If in Ab, which is the fifth month, Adad thunders, the day is cloudy, it rains, lightning flashes, water will become scarce at the source. If Adad shouts on a day without clouds, there will be darkness, variant, famine in the land. The king, my lord, need not worry about this illness. This is a seasonal disease. All the people who are sick are well now. 
Further, the king, my lord, who is one who reveres the gods and prays day and night to the gods, can really anything happen to the king, my lord, and his offspring? God disposes, and that is good. Somewhere it is said as follows. He is doing very well. His days will be short. He keeps fa falling ill. His days will be long. End quote. So basically... Um, if there's a thunder, if there's thunder, it's cloudy and it's raining, there's lightning, water will become scarce at the source. If there's thunder, but there are no clouds, then famine will happen. So I think you get the picture. So again, not only did these court astrologers report on what they saw as it happened, but they also made predictions for future astronomical events. We can't forget the movements of other planets as well. The Mesopotamians studied all five planets that you can see in the night sky. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Of course, those are the names we refer to them as today, but the Mesopotamians would have had their own names. There are actual entire manuals and compendia of clay tablets discovered that details the discoveries and observations of these people, affording us today a fantastic wealth of knowledge and insight into how people in the past viewed the cosmos. At the twilight of the Mesopotamian cultures, before the Persian Empire came in to dominate, the 12 signs of the zodiac were marked they picked them based on known and studied constellations that the planets, sun, and moon traveled through. Here are the modern zodiac names and the corresponding Babylonian names. Aries, or as the Babylonians called, the hired man. Taurus, or the bull of heaven. Gemini, or great twins. Cancer, or crab, Leo, or lion, Virgo, or furrow, Libra, or scales, Scorpio, or scorpion, Sagittarius, or pabilsug, Capricorn, or goatfish, Aquarius, or great one, and finally Pisces, or tails. I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know what a pabilsog is, um, but I should um, look more into that. With the advent of this system of astrology, the Babylonians began to use the information within medicine, too. Apparently, they thought to assign each organ of the body a zodiac sign. So here's some examples from clay tablets. Quote, if the moon is in the region of Gemini, then there might be seizure or epilepsy. Gemini and great twins. If the moon is in the region of cancer, migraine, dribbling, cramp. Alternatively, cancer, a lunar halo, unquote. Interesting. So if the moon is in Gemini, then there is a possibility of a seizure, according to the ancient Mesopotamians. <laughs> Mesopotamian astrology continued on with later ancient societies, 
such as the Greeks. They picked up Babylonian, Mesopotamian astrology, and they kind of made it their own. And much of today's modern practice of astrology is actually based in the systems of the Mesopotamians. Alright, so astrology was one form of divination, um, but there was other there were other forms of divination in Mesopotamia. Probably the most common was the examination of a goat or sheep's liver, but mostly in reference to the fate of the entire city-state rather than one individual's fate. So the chief omen makers or diviners, whoever, wouldn't just kill a goat or a sheep for little old me, say. But he would do it for the good of, you know, the United States as a whole. So we look at the liver, and the liver of the goat or sheep could tell us whether we need to go to war or do something to boost the economy or what have you. What could possibly have been divination on the everyday person were the presence of omens in their homes. So they would interpret such things as, say, a scorpion comes scuttling in or a snake comes slithering in. They might see those as omens. But again, like I said, other than that, the everyday person isn't going to go and kill a goat to figure out if they should take the left path over the right path at any given time. Alright, so say we find us a goat right now. We slit its throat and cut open its guts. I know, we're getting real dark. We examine the liver and what we find looks bleak. We can actually then turn to magic to potentially change the course of this omen. I don't know about you, but there are a few times in my life where I could have used a good counter charm to keep something from happening. Other than looking at the entrails of animals, the ancient Mesopotamians also used, obviously, astrology and dream interpretations to divine the future. It's kind of cool to think about humans recognizing that the world they live in consists of signs everywhere that just needed to be interpreted. So again, here is my pop cult. Here's another pop culture reference. The movie Signs by M. Night Shyamalan. There were signs everywhere and the main character played by Mel Gibson didn't think to believe those signs until they actually became important. So there you go. Signs in our everyday life. Unlike Egypt, which again, I'll dive into next episode, Mesopotamian magic focused mainly on healing the body and mind, oftentimes involving exorcisms by priests and other magic um, used by physicians. So basically, magic was the way in which humans repaired or fostered relationships with their gods. See what I mean about religion and magic going hand in hand? Many clay tablets written in the cuneiform contain magical incantations, which sought help from an, an appropriate deity, whoever it may be, or actually exposed the demon they were haunted by. So we have evidence of this. 
the ancient Mesopotamians actually had this concept of witchcraft. And, of course, they saw it as being something negative. The only time you could really use magic was in self-defense or healing. The main text about witchcraft was called Maklu, which was a collection of spells to use against witches. If you could identify the kind of witch you were dealing with, then you could use the appropriate spell to counter theirs or to retaliate. Here's an example I found of an incantation. Quote, The witch has performed against me her evil witchcraft. She has fed me her no-good drugs. She has given me to drive her life-depriving potion. She has bathed me in her deadly, dirty water. She has rubbed me with her destructive, evil oil. She has had me seized by her evil illness, seizure of a curse. She has given me over to the roving ghost of the stranger who has no family. Unquote. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like that person was having a real bad day. I find this incantation interesting. Mostly because the main pronoun for, wit for the witch used here is she. Now, I really don't know anything about Sumerian or Akkadian or any language in Mesopotamia. What their vocabulary consisted of, what their words for pronouns were, but for the translator to pick she makes me wonder if women were often the main culprits of being witches, which could potentially set a precedent for the rest of history. Apparently, the fear of being cursed was a constant. It was a part of everyday life. People took precautions in every aspect of their life, including trying to keep away the evil eye, which to them meant envy, or the evil tongue, which was gossip. But thanks to the Maklu, you had what you needed to combat these fears. As I mentioned earlier, most of Mesopotamian use of magic was in response to illness of the body. Doctors and exorcists often were called upon to diagnose what might be the ailment of a person ravaged with anything from a fever to eye issues to paranoia or even psychosis. The blame oftentimes fell to those demons I mentioned or the gods and even dangerous animals like scorpion stings or snake bites. So if the cause was supernatural then the cure would in turn need to be supernatural. Hence why they fell upon magic to treat the ill. Not only were there spells, but also protective amulets that could be worn to ward off evil and illness. Kind of like the one I mentioned earlier, in which the pregnant woman might wear a protective amulet to ward off Lamashtu to keep her unborn child safe. Why demons and or the gods chose you specifically to torture was not something that the Mesopotamians dwelled upon or put much thought into in the early centuries. There wasn't really a concept of sin until later periods. So if a god chose you to ruin your day, well, I guess it's because they were just feeling petty and picked you at random. 
So to wrap things up, we should emphasize the importance of Mesopotamia and its history for its contribution to the origins of civilization and really just the origins of history in general. Thanks to the written language of cuneiform and a bunch of clay tablets, we can say what magic was used for in these ancient times. They practiced divination in a couple of different forms. They looked to the night sky for omens and used magic to dispel anything or anyone that would do them harm. Magic was the cause of all illness, according to Mesopotamians, so naturally you would fight magic with magic. The lasting legacy of Mesopotamian magic ideas and astrology have echoed even to the modern day, which is a testament to its impact on society as a whole. Alright, that's it for Mesopotamia. Next episode, we will turn our sights a little more east and check out another river valley civilization, Egypt. Coffee and Conjure podcast was created, written, produced, and edited by me, J.R. Lesperance. Our theme music is composed by Emily Nafius, and our gorgeous podcast cover art was created by Neve at Neve Does Designing. Please like us on Facebook by searching Coffee and Conjure Podcast, and find us on Instagram and Twitter at Coffee Conjure PD. If you'd be so kind, subscribe, rate, and leave a review to let me know how I'm doing. And finally, don't forget to send in your questions, commentary, and coffee suggestions to coffeeandconjure at gmail.com. Until next time, stay enchanted. <laughs>